You are Locked On Bucks, your daily podcast on the Milwaukee Bucks, part of the Locked On Podcast Network. Your team every day. Backs him down. Giannis into the lane. Giannis spinning. Welcome to Locked on Bucks. I'm Eric Name, Milwaukee Bucks reporter at ESPN Wisconsin. And joining me as always is my good friend and the founder of Brew Hoop, Frank Madden. Frank, how you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm doing fine. Um, you know, I, uh, I'm i in Dallas right now, and uh, the weather in Texas is, is, is slightly better than it has been in Wisconsin. So shout out to uh, everybody back home who's been putting up with uh, less than ideal weather, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> springtime in Wisconsin. Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not missing it. Man, I'm so jacked right now because like, like an hour earlier, so we're recording at 8.45. At 7.45, I like could look outside and it was like still kind of lightish out. And it was like, oh man, summer's almost here. Oh, sh- there's a bunch of snow on the ground. Summer is not here, but it's light outside, so like I know it's close, but uh, there's too much snow and it sucks. So um, let's talk Milwaukee Bucks basketball, which surely will cheer us up. What? Um, <laughs> uh, we'll talk a little bit more about the series and kind of some of the stuff we're thinking about, talking about, uh, discussing and doing a little bit of that. Uh, But first, we wanted to talk a little bit about uh, Friday, uh, the, I don't even know what to call it, the ping pong ball 50-50 the ladder, yeah, the draft like tiebreaker a, a, thing. Because in like in the lead up to it, people are like, "So do they flip a coin or not?" And I'm like, "Well, it's a fifty fifty chance, but no, they don't flip a coin. But also, it's not like a. I guess it's technically a lottery uh, yeah, with only yeah. two participants, but uh, it's difficult to try to describe. But either way, the Milwaukee Bucks lost that lottery, which was Yay! a good thing. Losing is good. Um, the Bucks, unless lose. you wanted to, unless you wanted yeah. to lose the pick, in which case you wanted to win the tiebreaker and that's a whole thing but yes we are i think at this point people understand our stance was we want more picks now to help Giannis and maybe give the bucks more chances to be good in the next few years so anyway we may be wrong but that's that's our official uh hashtag locked on bucks uh perspective i guess <laughs> uh, is that is that how we're branding things now like if we yeah. agree on something it's a hashtag locked on bucks perspective i'll have to remember yeah, that. I don't know. Like um, that so the milwaukee bucks will have the 17th pick in the upcoming nba draft um obviously as we kind of talked about uh <laughs> this isn't a situation where winning that meant they got to keep a first round pick that they were gonna lose at some other time and now they don't have to lose it like they just have to lose it now at a different time uh so those protections still exist um and i guess that that's just important to kind of remember um i know the people on the opposing side from us uh believe that one of the things 
that is a big problem with this is that it ties up any draft, like any first round draft pick that the Bucks would want to trade because of the Stepien rule. Um, and you can't give up first rounders in consecutive years. So now there's a first rounder kind of tied up in uh, purgatory, I guess. I don't know if purgatory would be the right term for where it is, but that, that pick could convey um, in some other years. So this year was protected one through 10 and then 17 through 30. Obviously it fell at 17. So the bucks were able to keep it next year. It's one through three and 17 through 30 protect protected uh, in 2020. It's one through seven protected. And then in 2021, it is unprotected. So we'll kind of see what year this this pick ends up conveying, um, but not really sure of it at the moment. Uh, I guess 2020 is probably the year I would guess is the best chance. Uh, Just because I don't imagine that pick falling between four and 16 next season, uh, because maybe just the optimist in me is hoping that a new coach (laughs) would do something that wouldn't be whatever this was this season. Um, and I would be hoping for obviously a clean bill of health for all the box players and stuff like that. But, um, I would say 2020 feels the most likely as it's only protected one through seven that year. Um, but still, Bucks will keep their pick this year. Pick at seventeen. Um, we feel it's a good thing. You might disagree, which is fine. Um, but I, I guess as we talked through playoff scenarios, there was one where I'd said, "Okay, well, you you get the tiebreaker, or you tie for the sixth seed." And your tiebreakers drop you to the seventh seed. You get the Celtics, which is what you would want from a matchup perspective in the playoffs if you wanted a chance to win, and then getting in the pick this year is something that I thought was a good thing. So I kind of saw this as best case scenario. Yeah. I mean, within the confines of, you know, a very not ideal season, uh, you know, again, if given the choice between six, seven and eight and keep the pick or not keep the pick, this is sort of the, the two options that, that obviously you wanted. Um, so again, maybe, a, uh, the basketball gods smiling ever so slightly in the bucks direction um that doesn't sound if, right if, if they if they lo- if and when they lose this first round series then it won't be much of a solace but um but hey at least we have something to talk about leading this up is to very the true first draft um and and kind of ironic too i mean can you imagine i mean I, it's kind of funny i mean everybody talks about like john horse coming in and all like you know he's carryover from the john hammond era but it's like i mean they pretty much overhauled pretty much everybody else in in sort of that i mean granted you know like there, there's a number of people who, who were held over but in terms of like scouting and and just a lot of that infrastructure new people. you have a ton of new people um that are in positions and so i mean it would have been ironic if the bucks after the first year had no picks at all um and obviously we know they do not have a second round pick this year and that's kind of the interesting thing about this i had not this had not really occurred to me until um friend of the pod paul pressy 25 brought it up which was so as part of the Zeller deal, you know where the whole thing was. Well, it's it's probably not going to convey this year, so it's it's probably going to be a 2020 second rounder, and the Suns were going to get this year's Bucks second round pick, right? Because basically the way that the Suns deal was protected was um, they were going to get a pick. Uh, they're so, sorry. So so the way it was going to work was that basically the Bucks were going to lose their pick regardless, and the Nets pick was going to be either this year or 2020, and basically so the way and and maybe i'm completely i I, i'm still like i still like was confused by this even the other day but i think what's happened now is the bucks are basically don't owe a second round pick at all to phoenix because that was just this year 
and the Bucks are conveying the second round pick to um, to the Nets this year. So it's kind of a it's kind of a weird situation. So they only you know they they basically get the Nets pick out of the way this year in the second round rather than 2020, and then instead of having to owe that second round pick to the Suns, they they get to basically send it to New, the Brooklyn Nets instead. So I think net net they also didn't lose an extra second pick, mm-hmm. second round pick basically, which is kind of one of the things we didn't really talk about at all because I don't know, it sort of was like out of sight, out of mind. Obviously, we were focusing on the first round pick, and you know, again, we figured that the second round pick to Brooklyn was going to be in 2020. It was like, well, you know, so it goes. Um, I mean, who can put a price on on Tyler Zeller's ambidextrous finishing <laughs> off Giannis passes? But, um, but yeah, and and again, I would not be shocked if someone tells me like, oh no, you're getting this totally wrong. I mean, I like to take pride in understanding these things, but for some reason, the protections on these picks this year have just been totally confusing. Um, but the Bucks have a pick this year, so I know that. That's that's pretty much the only thing I know is that the Bucks have a second, have a first round pick, and it's number seventeen. And what could go wrong when the Milwaukee Bucks have the seventeenth overall pick in the NBA draft, Eric? What could go wrong? Nothing has gone wrong to this point. I can nothing in the very near in the very near past. I don't remember anything like that. That's a pick that's no. worked out for them, right? Uh, no, I mean, I mean, Giannis was fifteenth, which is close enough, and yeah, I can't possibly yeah. remember them ever getting a seventeenth pick that turned into Rashad Vaughn or DJ Wilson. That definitely didn't happen. So. Oh, Oh, um, oh, don't, yeah, 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 you're right. Um, weird, yeah, it, it could go terribly. Um, I guess one thing I, I was kind of, we ended up talking about this a little bit last night, and it, it's tangentially related to the Bucks and picks and stuff like that. And I guess one thing that I, I can't, it's something I, I already felt strongly before this year's playoffs, but as I've seen the, uh, this take develop, I've kind of started to further solidify this belief. But one take I've seen over the weekend was after the Sixers have their great game uh, in game one, and then the Bucks struggle through their game against the Celtics, there was this take out there, um, man, look at the Sixers. They already understand how to build around Simmons, and they understand how to go out here and get the right players that are really going to like space the floor and make everything work for Ben Simmons and the Giannis, and the Bucks have had Giannis for all these years and haven't done that yet and i i think i take i take exception to mentioning that they don't have the right players because to me it's largely coaching based like i think there's plenty of players around the bucks that could have worked and I mean, I just think of Mirza Toledovic as a perfect example of this. Like the Bucks knew that Giannis needed shooters around him and they decided to get someone that could shoot a lot at a high volume and at a high rate. And they went out and got him. And then they had a coach who decided that he preferred to stay in the bottom five of three point attempt rate for the entirety of his <laughs> coaching career and those two things like conflicted. So I I, I think there, there's a very strong marriage between personnel decisions and coaching. Like it has to be strong. Everything has to make sense. There has to be synergy with all these things. Otherwise, I think role players underperform. And it was something we talked about last night, but like you don't often see really good role players on poorly coached teams. Like that's just not something that yeah. exists because good coaches 
put those role players in situations where they can exist and they can thrive. So a lot of times you'll see guys that were maybe bad somewhere else go somewhere new and then all of a sudden they're good again. Or you'll see someone that was a good role player in the Spurs system go somewhere else not get the same looks, not get the same opportunities, and then all of a sudden they're bad. And the players' skills haven't changed. It's just how they're used, the ecosystem that they're a part of. And I, I don't know, like I, as I think through draft picks, like do I think there was any salvaging Rashad Vaughn? Probably not. But would I have liked to see him get coached by someone other than Jason Kidd? Yes. I would have. Um, <laughs> and, and I think you can say that for like anyone. We talked about it last night on the podcast. What if Sterling Brown actually gets to play the first 40 games of this season and isn't sat on the bench because he's not consistent enough or he misses rotations or he falls too much or whatever it may be? Like, What if he does actually get to play and instead of using Jason Terry for 18 minutes, you're able to use Jason Terry for eight minutes and you can use Sterling Brown for 10 minutes. Like there's just so many of those questions I keep finding myself going back to in these last couple of years where I don't necessarily know that there wasn't more talent or that there wasn't talented players that could have possibly been effective as role players. I just don't know. Actually, I do know that they weren't used in the best way. And I'm curious if other coaches would get their hands on those same players, if they could have done something new, interesting, uh, difficult to guard, anything to kind of salvage some of the value of some of those players yeah i mean i I look at role players kind of sort of like discussions around chemistry right like when you're you're good then it's just well then you have good chemistry when you're good then you have good role players right um and and even guys that don't maybe put up good numbers um have an extra sort of shine to them that maybe they wouldn't have um elsewhere you know um and you know like the the Celtics are kind of a good example. I mean, you you look at this team. I mean, uh, and granted, I mean they, they have more depth than the Bucks. You know, I mean they sure. they had you know at one point you know especially when uh, you know if, if Hayward had ever played. By the way, I find it funny how people always talk about um, oh well the Celtics are missing their two best players. And it's like well, I mean the Celtics team that won all these games did it. I mean Gordon Hayward wasn't a part of that. You know, like yeah. give give the roster credit. Like this is a Celtics team playing. This Celtics team is really playing without its best player in Kyrie or you know arguably it's certainly his best offensive player you know Horford's really good um but for the most part I mean Hayward's like almost not even really a factor in, in anything they did so um so that's kind of funny but uh, not to digress, digress too far but obviously they would have had a number of these guys like Rozier Smart um certainly Morris still coming off the bench I mean one of Jalen Brown and Jason Tatum could have been coming off the bench maybe two depending yeah. on how they did it with Hayward um so they obviously would have had a lot of guys a lot of guys off the bench but you know because the Celtics have been good like I haven't been hearing people like rip on like you know Shane Larkin having a 49% true shooting percentage or Abdul Nader being like a G leaguer or Semi Ojale having a 4.6 PER and a 47% true shooting percentage you know what yeah. I mean these are like I mean Semi Ojale offensively has like Rashad Vaughn rookie year historically decades you know some of the worst numbers we've had in like decades for a rookie yep. but he plays on a team that is good they have good depth he's a good defender so i mean you know that that's valuable um for for being a rookie um and so you know nobody really has an incentive to like find guys to blame because the team's good you know uh and so i think that's just a lot of times what happens um with with these good teams is you know and then a lot of it i think does have it's it's you know the the quality of the starters and just sort of the the synergy of everything working together and especially like defense right like when you're good defensively a lot of like role players who may not really be good defensively because they're 
part of something that's working, you know, everybody seems okay. And, and obviously the Bucks are kind of in the opposite situation where, because they haven't played defense all year, I mean, when these guys who are coming off the bench like don't score, then they just they can't be effective, right? As yep. as as units. So it's it's just it's really hard to kind of make things work. So yeah, hundred percent agree. Um, and again, I mean, like you know, Stevens is kind of the classic example of like all these guys who, um, you know, have have been kind of nice stories in Boston, and then they go someplace else. You know, Evan Turner being probably the, the biggest example. I didn't really like Evan Turner when he was in Boston either, um, but certainly since he got his $70 million contract uh, in Portland, uh, the story on him has gotten decidedly worse. So yeah, I, I I totally agree. And I think that's, you know, again, just, and again, it's not to say that like, oh, the Bucks shouldn't do anything this summer, um, but it, it is it is a fascinating thing just from an like experimental sort of thought, you know, just, just from a sort yeah. of process standpoint, like it would be fascinating to see like if it is the, the roughly the same team next year. I mean, how much can that, that new coaching staff bring out of this team obviously you'd hope that it would be a fair bit of improvement um and again who knows how much the bucks roster will change but if it doesn't hey at least we'll get to know really how much of a difference yeah. having not jason kidd be your head coach um so anyway yeah definitely an interesting thing um l- let's talk a little bit kind of uh, let's think about adjustments right and and this is always one of the, the things fans we like to talk about the most right what adjustments are these coaches going to make what is the chess game between brad stevens and joe prenti you know what, what's going to happen and um and and everybody likes this is where we all like to you know put on our uh, our x's and o's hats and you know act like we are really smart basketball minds or whatever which i you know will will put in put in quotes for myself um <laughs> but i, I think it, it, game one was interesting because obviously uh i think the most interesting thing and probably the place to start is with these center Giannis lineups right and you know basically you saw henson play a ton of minutes 37 minutes tyler zero plays what four minutes and then the last few minutes of the game, I think, what, uh, did they go to the, that final lineup at, like, the three or four-minute mark, I think, with Snell coming in for Henson? Yep. And you see this this small lineup with, that, with the Giannis center lineup come in. And, um, you know, I thought I thought it, it, our friends uh, Danny LaRue and, and Nate Duncan had a, had a good take on it. And I, I think the, the takeaway from them was, you know, both teams scored a lot down the stretch. Like, it was not like, you know... <laughs> A defensive grudge match in the last few minutes of regulation. Uh, I think the Bucks made up four or five points to tie it. Um, and I was gonna say it saved everyone's collective offensive and defensive <laughs> rating. Like the final four <laughs> minutes of regulation and the five minutes in overtime. Like I believe I'm not a hundred percent sure on that, but I believe halfway through the fourth quarter, I think it was an 85 offensive rating for the Bucks and a 90 offensive rating for the Celtics. Like it was. It was bad, but yeah, the, the final four minutes in overtime, everyone scored. Everyone scored, and in that overtime, the Bucks got a ton of very good looks that they did not convert on. Open threes from Snell had what one or two. Um, Middleton had another one. I mean, they, they Brogdon had on the same shot. possession. Middleton and yeah, Brogdon right. each had one. The two guys that hit huge threes to tie the game and send it to overtime both missed threes ironically in overtime yeah and Giannis splits four free throws in the final minute so there were a lot more points the Bucks left on the court unfortunately um and so I think the bottom line is is interesting right because the Bucks I thought were getting very good shots and I think what Nate and Danny brought up was that from a process standpoint obviously they end up losing the game right you you look at the Bucks after going small and granted part of the issue in overtime was you know Giannis fouls out but um but fundamentally the Celtics had to take a lot of bad shots in, in those last few minutes. They they hit some very difficult shots as well to kind of you know 
balance things out and and match the Bucks and go tit for tat with them. You know, Morris had, I think, especially one just backbreaking three. Um, but you know, aside from like Terry Rozier hitting that play, hitting that three on the play where Bledsoe, you know, was basically trying to uh, basically knew there was a play coming for uh, for Jalen Brown off the off the wing and just completely lost track of the guy with the ball, which is not a great uh, approach to playing defense. But, um, but aside from like that play, and then I think Rozier had one, um, had one three off a, a screen. I mean, it was like a pin down or something on the right wing, I think where he got open for a three as well. Um, I mean, the Bucks defended very well. I mean, they, they, they forced the Celtics into late clock situations throughout the game. Um, but in those last few minutes, they finally actually like forced difficult shots. And, you know, again, like, let some some second chances kind of slip through their hands. Tony Snell had a couple where you know you really felt like he should have come up with the ball. He doesn't. Um, and again, that's one trade off. Obviously, with going small, is that the Bucks' defensive rebounding issues are, are certainly not going to get better playing a smaller lineup. Um, but overall, you know, this was kind of the storyline that we've kind of been waiting to talk about all year. You know, center Giannis, like, oh, how are you going to, you know how are you going to defend the Bucks when they spread the ball around Giannis and things like that? And this is actually what they did. I mean, they actually did it, right? They gave the ball to Giannis in the middle of the court. They let him create. Um, it just seemed like there was way more, you know, um, space on the court for Giannis to operate. That um, that little pick-and-roll slip where, where Giannis gets the dunk off a of pick-and-roll, I mean, that was just, like, a beautiful thing to see, right? It's like, oh, Giannis pick-and-roll dunks, un- like, almost uncontested. Like, what a beautiful thing to see. And so, obviously, I think the question a lot of us have is, all right, how do you how do you take advantage of that in game two? I mean, surely we're going to see that at some point, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, unless, unless the Bucks just go wire-to-wire wire and are up, you know, 10, 10 points the entire game or something um you would think that if the game is close or, or they're down that that joe prunty will go to that at some point um but i mean what do you think like do you think that it's something we'll actually see a lot of do you think it'll be more tactically used i, I don't know i mean what was your take on center line Giannis lineup and do, i mean do you think it's real do you think that success that we saw in that game in game one was real or do you think it's you know what we've seen all year which has been obviously far more underwhelming is more of the real center Giannis uh situation at least at least this year with with the current coaching staff and personnel i don't know if i could more desperately want something to be real um <laughs> like it, it, we've talked about it like you said the entire year and any mailbag we did any conversation we had with fans any game where there was even a chance or a possibility that that could be a lineup used like we would get tweets about it. Like people want to see it. And obviously we've wanted to see it. We've been, I mean, I'm trying to think, I think Steve was still on the pod when we were talking center Giannis and point guard Giannis, right? Like that was was like three years ago. Uh, So it's something that I think all of us have always wanted to see. And then this year, it's just been entirely underwhelming that you just look and it's the the numbers for it just aren't good. And it, it was really a welcome surprise by me. And I guess the one thing I was seeing is you mentioned a couple of those plays. Like there was the, the 
kind of pick and roll look with Middleton and Giannis, which I think like came out of a, a dribble handoff or something of that nature where Middleton was kind of curling around it. And then uh, they obviously had Middleton had it going. So two defenders had to go left side cleared out. Giannis gets an easy dunk and you're just like, Oh my gosh, I, I haven't seen one of those. It's something so easy for Giannis in a half court set. in I don't know how long. And so often when Giannis and Chris are working together, there's, a seeming dis there's seemingly a disconnect right like there, there's just not a, a a chemistry there and it was just so welcome to see and i i want to believe that it'll be great again but i don't know if it will be i just thought when they were doing it the big thing to me was i think a lot of the times when they go center Giannis, they will go center Giannis and say okay Giannis, you got some big dude covering you just isolate. We're going to stand here. And largely that wasn't the case. Like I, I thought throughout of, through all of that on each of the sides, as they put the ball in Giannis's hands in the middle of the floor, like there was actual action. There was screening there. Even if it's an interchange between Tony Snell and Malcolm Brogdon or, or whoever it may be, there was movement. There was things the other team had to be aware of and needed to guard because they were credible threats so uh, i thought offensively it looked good uh, defensively I, I just thought the entire game no matter what lineup the bucks were in i thought the bucks played well defensively yesterday and and i mean you look at the numbers and uh their defensive rating ends up being 106.1 which is i believe better than it had been for the post all-star break period for the bucks um and like i said if you don't have those final 10 minutes like it was they had the celtics had like a 90 defense they had a 90 defensive rating against the celtics for much of that game i just thought the defense throughout the game was really solid they were uh executing in ways against that Celtics team that you'd like to see, like going under some Terry Rozier screens or going over or making sure that they were uh, getting over the top on Jason Tatum and uh, making Jalen Brown work for everything and not over helping and doing a a lot of those good things. And uh, man, I don't, I don't, I honestly, I don't have any, Center Giannis was so effective that those lineup was so effective that it's totally thrown me off because it's so different than how things went during the regular season that I have no idea if it's real. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, just on the the Chris and Giannis thing, I mean, I mean, we've kind of talked about this before. I mean, one of the reasons you usually don't see pick and rolls between sort of like for like size players is just because it's just like kind of begging for a switch, yep. you know, and, and, um, you know, Chris, I was encouraged. I mean, Chris played great. Like, I, I, I think we really need to, you know, again, acknowledge that because, again, he's a guy that obviously we have questioned all season in previous seasons for him not showing up and really playing at a high level when the Bucks have been, you know, in these playoff matchups and, you know, playing against really good teams. I mean, oftentimes Chris has, has just not played at his best. And to see him come out in, you know, a road uh, playoff game like that um, was obviously just, terrific i mean it was yeah. it was a really big credit to him and they needed that with Bledsoe struggling so um shout out to chris again we'll see you know whether he can be that good um you know two games in a row but even if he's just regular chris middleton you know then that's that's a, a big win for this series um but yeah i mean i think it, again i i think so much of of offense is just variance right and just giving teams different looks and that's why you know you i would like to see chris and Giannis try to 
play some two-man games occasionally just because again like i don't even know how much that's on team scouting reports right i mean it's just yeah. it seems like an obvious thing to switch but again with chris and his ability to shoot from mid-range and from three um you know teams have to be very careful in how they defend chris and um you know again if they aren't really thinking that it's coming then you know again if their regular principle is to you know go over and zone drop the big man or you know whoever if you is being guarded by a big guy then obviously that means that chris is probably going to get a, a very makeable shot and you know if they try to you know play that way as well then chris is obviously we've seen him especially with john henson i mean if you can make John Henson look really good as a pick and roll finisher, <laughs> you can probably make Giannis look pretty good as a finisher, right? And um, it, it's funny you mentioned that because earlier in the game, it looked like he had an alley oop opportunity with Giannis. I don't yeah, know if you remember the play. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. he like threw it behind, and I don't know if he thought Giannis was like going to stop and kind of hang out in like the zone area where like say like a Tyler Zeller would. Uh, but he like threw it there, and like you could tell like Giannis just like looked at him like, you know who I am, right? Like. <laughs> Just put it up in the air. I'll go get it. And I don't. It's funny that they don't. And again, you laid out a number of the reasons why they wouldn't have chemistry and why the Bucks wouldn't go to a lot of that. But yeah, I think uh, in the playoffs, like just especially in a seven game series, you just need to find those ways. Even if it's even if it's three possessions in a game, if for three possessions you give the other team a look they haven't seen before, and it leverages your two best players, like. I think that's huge. And even if that just means they need to spend an hour more on that, on that one thing, and maybe you don't even run it again in a later game. But like you said, just that variance in the playoff series is huge. Just so teams can't get used to things that teams can't feel comfortable against you uh, as they try to figure out how to stop you offensively. Yeah. And um, so I, I think the, the center Giannis lineup, again, I, the one thing that gave me hesitation and, and again, like, Net for net, I mean, the Bucks did not have some big advantage. I mean, I think it was probably about even. I think they were like plus one or maybe even even when I was looking at the the game flow on popcornmachine.net where you can look at, you know, different lineups and things like that. Um, so, I mean, it's not like there was like some clear numerical advantage there. But again, like from a quality of shot perspective, the Bucks forced the Celtics into taking very difficult shots. Now they gave up some second chances. And that's just, you know, again, part of the the issue with you know playing smaller um but that's also just part of the bucks problem more 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 generally <laughs> yeah. um so i mean it's not like a free lunch or whatever but uh, again i think you can play in a way that probably is is going to be you know it's going to be switchier um and again if you get ability to if you can force some more turnovers then you're going to be able to run really well too because you've got Giannis and four smaller guys who can space the floor and get out on the break rather than I mean the Red Sea parting for Giannis like that was the perfect Uh, example on that trail on that trail right when he had that dunk on that um sort of secondary break when he was like the last man up the court um so yeah I I agree I think my, my hesitation is just I mean and again it was a little hard to tell I mean how much of it is him playing center versus um just the fact that he was finishing up 45 minutes of playoff basketball I mean he yeah. looked gassed in that in the overtime um and again I mean uh, he was playing Horford much of the night when uh Boston was playing big uh you know and they they obviously start with Baines as well so you know it's sort of those things like he's not going to be able to avoid having to defend Al, Hor- Al Horford all night um so I think it, they're kind of different things you can do. But that said, um, yeah, I mean, I think if you can get that Giannis lineup out there at some point in the first half, 
Um, maybe you give it a look then. Uh, and then do you go to it earlier in the fourth quarter if it's a close game? I think that, to me, would maybe be the, the way to do it. Um, Don't use well, it I just mean, behind. It, Don't only use it when you're behind. Yeah, like yeah, you, well, that's, use that's it when you're great. ahead at times. And and the couple of, and so last year, uh, not this season, but last season, that was like when we first saw Kid actually go to that small lineup with Mirza and Giannis. Yeah. He did it early in the season a bit, but it was always when they were down, right? And it was never like a way to kind of kill off a team. It was always like a desperation mood. Um, and and so yeah, and, and, I mean, keep in mind too. I mean, right, like the death lineup of a few years ago with Golden State. That sort of you know really was the you know first iteration of sort of the the dominant small ball lineup i mean they didn't go to it that much right because it was i think physically taxing for draymond to play a lot at center i mean he still does it but um but it's you know it wears on you if you're a a guy who's not a bruiser and and you know al horford is i mean al horford wants to like bang i mean he he's a guy who i mean he's not like a joel mb just enormous physical freak of a human but like He's used to playing against those guys, so he plays with the physicality that he just, you know, yo-yo bangs into guys. And <laughs> I mean, if ever Giannis were to like learn how to flop, it would be in situations like that because Horford's like pretty like inelegant in the way he does it. Like, there's yeah. nothing very subtle about the way he like throws his backside into you um, in the post. But um, again, I don't think Giannis has taken a charge in his life, so uh, <laughs> probably not the time to start. Um, I was gonna say with that, I, I think one thing. While rewatching the game today, um, Aaron Baines only plays 15 minutes, but I, I think most of those minutes came with Horford on the floor. Certainly, obviously, when they started together. But anytime Bain, anytime Bain's is on the floor, uh, the Celtics run a lot of that flex action, uh, a lot of screen action on like the baseline to try to get guys to a block. Um, and when it's with Baines, they normally put Baines in the high post and then try to get Horford on Giannis on a block. And a lot of the times, I, they're so focused on keeping the ball on that one side, and Baines is not really a threat. That there was times where John Henson could just stand in the middle of the lane and just just muddle everything like you just couldn't you couldn't get through cleanly you couldn't establish good post position and it was just something that to me made Giannis's life easier um because you saw on the very first possession of the game they screen him they screen Al Horford across he gets to the uh, left block gets his left shoulder into Giannis and finishes with a, a little baby hook with the right hand and that was easy but the next time down Henson was there and I just think any minutes any moments that Bucks defenders can be physical with Al Horford. It it's not affecting Al Horford, but just the fact that Al Horford can't, as you so eloquently put it, jam his ass into Giannis. Like <laughs> if, if he's not doing that, that takes just even even the slightest bit of toll off of Giannis, and, and I think that can just be so huge for the entirety of the game. So uh, I think if Baines is on the floor with Horford at any time, whatever big is on the floor just has to come down and be ready to chuck and hit Horford. And again, you might be flirting with a defensive three and you know what? You probably take one of those uh, just to be able to do that and make Giannis's life that much easier. Because to me, that's the big adjustment, right? Like Horford outplayed Giannis in game one. Um, And again, maybe you can argue that just Giannis's pure volume would have outplayed Horford, but just Giannis picking up those fouls and reaching in on Horford and just try, I guess trying a little bit too hard for steals and stuff like that. Like I just thought that that gave Horford and the Celtics the advantage. And if you want Giannis to be the clear 
best player in this series, which I believe him to be, like the Bucks just have to find ways to make that matchup easier for him, even if it is for two possessions in the first quarter. Like that, those things add up when Giannis is playing forty-three minutes in a game. Like you have to be able to do those things. Yeah, one thing I was worried, I was thinking about too, and you know, it's funny. I mean, as as much as we talk about like the core of the Bucks defense, like not really changing. I mean, one thing that has obviously changed a lot in the last couple of years, and this started to change last year too. And I, I mean, we, we talked about this last year. I know that like, you know, in, in discussing Jason Kidd, like, you know, the emphasis was more on things not changing and learning and all that. But mm-hmm. I mean, they, they have, they have cut down on their double teams pretty significantly over the last couple of years. Um, you know, a couple of years ago, it seemed like it was just automatically <laughs> that a post, touch got a double team it didn't even have to be um, a good post touch it didn't even have to be in the post like it could just yeah. be in the general area of that corner of the floor right. and it was like oh there's a double team right is peter dinklage posting up Giannis at a combo <laughs> throw a double <laughs> double that man make him pass it between Giannis's legs um but uh but yeah i mean what's one area where there has been change i mean you know watch that game right i mean they let you know yet they said Giannis, you know what like you're smaller or, or well you're not smaller but you're lighter than al horford so you're just going to have to deal with the fact that he's going to like bang bang on you and and we're not going to bring bring that extra help now i mean sometimes they do and that's kind of one thing i sort of wonder about like and it's so tough with horford because he is such a great passer so you know again like when you double a guy it's because you're afraid of you know that he can create just a layup basically and you know again with Giannis, like just play him straight up you know put your arms up don't reach um force him into you know even if it's a four foot semi-contested hook shot i mean granted that might be a high percentage shot for al in that scenario but you know overall post plays are are still generally pretty low efficiency and so you know make him hit that but is there you know i I don't know that's kind of what i've been wondering about like is can can you maybe throw him like like one trap you know like like one well-timed trap when he when they're not expecting i I don't know i mean that's the hard thing right i mean good teams beat beat traps they beat double teams um but by the same token as well i mean look the whole jason kidd experience like kind of made everyone like so sensitive to post double teams or or any trap anywhere but i mean good defensive teams will do that at times i mean like it's not like if you're a good defensive team, you never trap or you never throw a double team in the post. It's just about being smart about it and not being predictable and doing it too much, right? So yeah. anyway, just one thing to kind of think about, I don't, I don't know if we're going to see that. I don't even know if it's smart, but uh, again, like trying to think about how you help out Giannis, um, how you keep uh, Al Horford and company on their toes. Yeah, maybe that's one thing. But again, you, you know, you have to do it in the right way. If you get, you know, if Horford's like maybe more, uh, along the baseline or something, right? And you can bring a guy without him necessarily seeing or something like that, right? You want to create, put him in a situation where he doesn't have good angles to pass because, again, if you're going to double, you want to then also limit the guy's passing angle so you know where he's got to pass the ball and hopefully it's not, you know, six feet away to a guy wide open as a three-point arc. I was going to say, they tried that one second half. Um, I think they sent Middleton from the baseline, if I remember correctly, and he didn't get to Horford, and that was the one where he threw it across to Jalen Brown, and Jalen Brown got that dunk. I, I can't. I don't know if you can picture it, but the, the key is, like, you can send it up. You, you, you can mix it up uh, with those guys, but you have to make sure that you get there. Uh, you, get yeah. that, you just have to make sure that it hits and it's effective. And, and I guess the times to do it is just looking through uh, – looking through kind of the game flow on popcornmachine.net. Again, we talk about it all the time. Great website. 
that kind of helps you visualize who's on the floor together. Um, but there's moments where in that game yesterday where uh, at the end of the third quarter, I think they had, uh, looking at it now, Ojale, Monroe, Larkin, Al Horford, and Jason Tatum on the floor together. Like, that's the time. <laughs> at that moment, go send some doubles. Like if Al, like if if Al Horford gets a post touch, get it. And, and really, I think maybe you could use it more generally as a rule. Like if Semi Ojale is on the floor with him, like okay, that's a time that we're doubling. <laughs> just because, as you said, like he's just not good enough offensively, and you can win that scramble. Like the key is do it smart and do it like not all the time. You get you got to find little pockets. And again. If we're looking through all of this, like you can only imagine how many people an NBA staff has, like trying to figure all these things out. So um, I think it is always something that's interesting to watch. And you mentioned adjustments and how this being all always the thing that we talked about before the series started. Uh, Joe Pronti talked about that a little bit about how uh, adjustments always get talked about. And one thing he said is like th- there there will be big adjustments in a series. Like uh, and then he he referenced last year how the Raptors went to Norm Powell and how that was like their bigger adjustment he's like but he's like from game to game there's a million much smaller adjustments that we're making he's like at all times both teams are trying to figure out how do we get the most out of these units how do we get the most out of our team so um i I think it'll be fun interesting to watch but like i said last night i don't know that that the adjustments for me are really all that difficult or confusing yeah and Cut cut out yeah. five turnovers, and yeah. don't reach on Al Horford as much. Like th- those are my big ones. And again, those might be hard rules to follow. The Celtics are a very good defensive team, and I know we had a listener ask us to kind of break down what the Celtics did well defensively. And I mean, at, to force some of those turnovers and make the Bucks struggle. And I think largely it's just kind of what the Celtics always do. Like they, when we always talk about the Bucks moving on a string and five guys at the same time making the same rotations and uh, being able to pack guys into the paint and take away three, like the, the Celtics are just a really good defensive team. They understand their defensive principles. They understand when they can help. They understand how to help. They understand when to stunt and then get back. Like they understand all those wells. They're all those things very well. They're very well coached. Like I don't know that there's one thing that I'm going to point to and say, well, when Giannis had the ball here, the Celtics did a really nice job of doing this. Like the Celtics just do a really nice job, period. Like there's a reason they're the number one defense in the entire league. But to me, it felt like many of those mistakes were self-inflicted. Like if you have John Henson rolling into the middle of the lane, John Henson has to know that on the catch, he can shoot it or he can pass it. He can't dribble. And there was a turnover there. Like Eric Bledsoe needs to know, hey, if I get in here, I can't try to force this up. I need to play within myself and dribble back out underneath the basket or something like that. Like uh, it just felt like a a number of those 20 turnovers were self-inflicted. So the Celtics period are just a very good defensive team and the Bucks just have to kind of know that and play within themselves. Yeah. and, And here's the thing. I mean, when you have the best player in the series, when you have talented players, you don't need to make as many adjustments, or at least the adjustments yep. are not around finding like the random guy on the bench that's going to turn the series around, right? Like the Bucks, the Bucks shouldn't need to, you know, 
find uh, get Sterling Brown to completely change this series the way that Norm Powell did. Now, would I like to see Sterling Brown maybe get a little more run at some point, especially in game, you know, in situations where the Bucks maybe need a little bit more defensive edge? Um, I mean, I think he's one of the few like wings who actually might make a difference on the defensive glass a little bit, just because he's a guy who just goes and gets it. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, again, like fundamentally this game you know if you're the bucks and you play Giannis and chris and hopefully we'll continue to say bledsoe because hopefully he plays better but if you play those guys a lot of minutes and make sure the ball goes through them in particular Giannis, you know again you don't need to play eight-dimensional chess necessarily um and again not to say that not to say that you don't need to make small changes and keep the other team off balance and you know things like that not to like diminish what what the coaching staff has to do but um but again like keep it simple you know you need points put Giannis out there with a bunch of shooters and give him the ball in the center of the court and you know figure out how to get Giannis lanes to to attack the basket I mean again it's it's not rocket science it's not you know the same kind of challenge that Stevens has where he has to you know again not it's not water from wine necessarily or wine to to turn water into wine but (laughs) um but there's a lot more of like smoke and mirrors that you need when you know you have Shane Larkin and Semi Ojale and guys like that chewing up chewing up big chunks of minutes um one one other thing maybe we can talk about before before we talk about this draft pick and then not that we're going to have some massive insight into who the Bucks should pick in the first round of the 2018 NBA draft. Um, but uh, Jabari Parker has been uh, a justifiable lightning rod for, especially since he came back from his injury. Um, mm. You know, I think a lot of the debates about Jabari kind of, you know, went into hibernation with his ACL tear. And obviously with his free agency looming, it's all the more important. And now in his first playoff series, um, you know, everything is sort of coming to a head. And certainly he had a first uh, playoff game to forget in uh, game one, plays only 15 minutes. Uh, And, you know, I think, you know, we talked about our skepticism of him being a part of closing rotations. Um, And again, I mean, the Bucs only really played eight guys. um, So it's not like, you know, they have a ton of other options sort of at the combo forward spots. I mean, Shabazz Muhammad, in, in theory, could take Jabari's spot. But I I would assume that we will once again see Jabari come in, you know, midway through the first quarter. He will get a chance to try to get some get some rhythm in the you know second half of the first quarter and the second quarter and kind of go from there. And he'll probably get some run in the second half. And I think, you know, again, I would still be, even if he plays well in those stints, I'd be pretty surprised if it's a close game and he's on the court late to close it just because again the playoffs are all about finding weaknesses and you know if he's on the court in in a late game situation the other team is going to do everything they can to find him and take advantage of him defensively um but I, i don't know i don't think that you know there's been some talk about like well can you even play jabari parker at all i i don't think jabari parker is not going to play I think he's definitely going to get a chance to try to redeem himself. And I think from a Bucks perspective, you know, again, it's like, can he just minimize mistakes defensively? And then offensively, obviously we know he's capable. And especially if the game gets a little bit more open, a little bit, you know, um, up and down, that's a situation where maybe Jabari can go on a bit of a run. Maybe he gets a couple open threes, um, you know, like in that Denver game, he can, he can pile up points pretty quickly. But again, if he doesn't pile up points, that's where he gets into trouble. That's where the Bucks are, are in really bad shape. I think the one of the one of the things that that's going to be tough for Jabari is that I think often when we've seen him get rhythm 
since returning from the injury, it has been when he is undoubtedly the man on the floor, right? Like it's, it's Jabari, like this year time, second quarter, uh, both Chris and Giannis are off the floor, or maybe it's just Chris and like, it's not a huge deal. Like I shouldn't say it's not a huge deal, but it's the regular season. Like we can try to get you going a little bit here. Like those moments don't exist in the playoffs. Like, uh, like I don't think uh, it's nice if Jabari Parker can get going, but if Chris Middleton is going to play 40, let's see, he had 47 minutes this past game. Uh, so minus five, 42 minutes and Giannis plays four. So like if both those guys play 42 minutes and they are staggered, like there's not going to be probably a moment where neither of them are on the floor. And it was the same way in the regular season, but in the postseason, I just feel like you value those possessions so much. And it it's just always been, or it's always felt like when you watch Jabari, like unless he's engaged in getting the basketball and kind of getting a chance to be the guy, he gets disengaged and he's not as, as happy to be out there and he, he'll just stay in the corner and maybe he'll shoot some threes. And some nights those threes will go in and other nights they won't. And I just don't know that that there's going to be a time where the Bucks are going to willingly seed uh, developmental reps to Jabari Parker, if that makes any sense. Like every possession matters so much that I just feel like Giannis or Chris and maybe even Eric Bledsoe, if he gets it going more in this game, certainly not in the last game, but it's going to be Giannis or Chris and the offense is going to run through those two and Jabari's going to have to get his where he can get it. And I don't know if he always reacts all that well in this, in those situations. And you mentioned him being a lightning rod and people today were talking about his reaction to Chris Middleton's shot, which is just so incredibly stupid. Um, like that it, when you're, when I'm talking about Jabari Parker's body language, like let's go find the three that he took in the fourth quarter in the right corner and the lackadaisical path he took to trying to guard and transition defense. Like that's the body language I'm talking about. Like, I don't care whether or not he claps on the bench and he's ecstatic when somebody else has a shot like that, that shit doesn't matter. But when you're out on the floor and you're that disengaged in the fourth quarter of the playoffs, yeah, you're going to get benched, and I think it's justifiable for everyone to complain about your body language. Uh, yeah, and I mean, one thing I would say, though, about Jabari, and this is sort of one of the things that I think is most surprising about him, is when he's successful, I still think he's a rhythm player. He's not a run the ball through Jabari player, right? Like, like I don't think we've ever really seen him. Maybe maybe there were times where they would do that. We would run him like elbow stuff um, in that in last season before his injury. Um, but for the most part, I don't know. I mean, he was very successful without Giannis, but I feel like he's still a guy that's like, it's hard to just like force feed him the ball and just like, oh, go get me buckets, Jabari. Like, you know, like, I mean, he he can obviously hit mid-range jumpers and, you know, do stuff where he can get a shot without, you know, needing to get just something spoon-fed to him. But he's still a guy who's just, you know, he he still is like more of a ball mover than a ball stopper. And I, I don't know. It's, but that it's requires sort of- getting the ball, right? Like, I feel like he needs to be involved in a possession early. Like, even if he is going to give it up, like, he needs to get that touch early. Or maybe we see it differently. Yeah, I mean, he's, you can say there's certainly a, um, you know, like the example was always, you know, Dwight Howard and 
Um, ben Wallace were always good examples, right? Like but Dwight Howard, obviously a guy who scored a ton of points in his career, but notoriously, like if he wasn't getting touches, if he wasn't getting post touches, he would probably not defend as well. And Ben Wallace, not an offensive player, but I mean, you know, a great story about how Detroit always used to like run the first play of the game for Ben Wallace. And they didn't care if he just like punted the ball into the <laughs> stands, you know, like they would give him a post touch to start a game just to get him like just get his juices flowing, yep. just to see what would happen. And Jabari obviously, unfortunately, is not a all NBA defensive center um, like those guys are. But it does seem like he needs that touch to sort of like, you know, get that uh, that the juices flowing a bit and, and kind of get the hop in his step um, on both ends. And and again, it's not like that he's just going to grab it and then jab step for five seconds and then take a mid-range jumper like he, he's generally pretty quick decision maker with the ball um but yeah it's that question of how do you avoid him just like going into the corner and you know becoming tony snell right and, yeah. and that's and that's kind of a fundamental problem because you know again that's what i think the biggest argument that a lot of people have around jabari is well you know you telling me jabari can't do what tony snell does offensively it's like well i'm i'm sure he could you know stand around and take you know, spot up threes and not do a whole lot, do a whole yeah. lot else. I mean, that that's not. I think that's within his skill set. Um, I, but, you know what? I will argue that he can't do it. I will willingly argue that he can't do it because the one thing he'll that, be miserable. He'll be miserable doing it, and it'll spill into everything probably. But, that, but yeah, I mean, and also like Tony Snow will actually stay in the corner. Like yeah. he will actively oh, yeah. stand in the corner. He will wander out to the uh, yeah. I, yeah. They, like they were running that one play. I uh, I clipped it and put it on my Twitter if you want to check it out. But it was one of the plays where I thought the Buck spacing was actually kind of good. It wasn't perfect. Like there were still things that they could improve, but it was kind of good. And the key was they ran a middle pick and roll with Bledsoe and Giannis, and on the left side Tony Snell was there in the corner. And there was another play that. I think B-Ball Breakdown, someone tweeted out in the second half of yesterday's game, and on that play, they quote tweeted and said something like, oh, here's the Bucks' basic misunderstanding of spacing, and they're terrible at spacing the floor, and blah, blah, blah. And Jabari was in the short corner when he was playing the exact same role as Tony Snell. Like, that's a problem. Like, he doesn't need to be there, and he's actively taking away Giannis's space on a roll. Like, that is huge. So when I like, I will willingly say I don't think Jabari Parker can do what Tony Snell can do because he can't play with the same discipline that keeps him outside the three point line and keeps the floor like the floor spaced. Well, and this is and this is also why you know having a a uh, a team that you know runs more backside action has more cutting, you know does things with more purpose and with more options would probably help everybody, including somebody like Jabari Parker, right? Because when they just sort of stand around, I mean that. That's that's not great for certainly Jabari Parker, but probably not for Tony Snell even either. Yeah. Like you, I think you need more than that. I mean, watching like the Sixers and the way Bellinelli and and JJ Redick have run around like crazy and and put pressure and used the gravity of their three point shots to also like create openings and lanes and cuts to the basket. Um, yeah. It's it's been pretty fun watching the Sixers um, of late because you know again it shows that outside shooters don't have to just stand around on the outside waiting for, you know, other people's gravity to, to create shots for them. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's an interesting debate obviously. And, and it's, it's funny though, right? Cause I mean, it's like, it's interesting that the whole, the, all the talking point about talking points about Jabari and not having any instincts for where he should be on offense. I mean, like a couple years ago, like I, I don't remember us ever really thinking that, right. I mean, there was like 
baseline Bari, like, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, he actually had, like, very good instincts on how to cut, um, and, and I, I don't know, I never really got the feeling of, oh, he just has no idea where he's supposed to be, he's, like, a complete imbecile who's just, like, totally blowing up, like, you know, anything I, they're trying to do. I, I mean, love it's, it's baseline kinda... Bari, like, it, those were all good cuts, like, it, yeah. he was in the right spot, cutting at the right time. Yeah, so it's, it's kind of fresh, and that's why it's, like, defensively, I'm not gonna make any claims for Jabari Parker that he can be salvaged or anything, right? Yeah offensively like i mean we, we've complained about the bucks offensive coaching for years and so I, I don't know i think like to say that like jabari is like hopeless i mean seems kind of silly um it, you know like uh, you know if if jabari was in boston or san antonio like do we really think that pop and brad stevens like couldn't turn Jabari Parker into a very good offensive player, a very useful offensive player. I mean, come on. Like, I mean, we can't be that like wedded to just sort of what we see in the here and now. I think we have to kind of, I think be a little consistent (laughs) with the way we think about all these things. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's obviously a challenge right now because, you know, Craig Popovich uh, ain't walking through that door to coach the Milwaukee (laughs) Bucks. Um, And it is what it is. But again, I, I, he's going to get chances to play and, and, you know, that's an X factor, right? I mean, if yeah. Jabari Parker comes in and gives you, you know, 12 points in 15 minutes on, you know, nine shots or something like that and is, you know, not totally obviously horrendous defensively, um, then that then that could be one of those things that, you know, those little swing swing moments of the game, right? Because yeah. obviously the Bucks are, are not playing with a lot of depth right now. Um, we've talked a lot about a million things. Do we want to just briefly talk about... Um, the draft at all or, sure and, and here's what i got for you and how much we don't know about the draft here's what here's what i got uh i i checked out some of uh the top 100 list the mock drafts from jonathan gavoni at espn uh formerly of draft express now all under the paywall which is kind of sad um because draft express was always the best the absolute best um, so easy to navigate too ugh, like it was such yeah. a good website um and I would never say anything bad about ESPN. That their product is great at, at ESPN as well. Um, but hashtag on brand, <laughs> company manned. Um, just looking through it a little bit. Here's some things you need to know about me. I'm in on the Bridges brothers. They're not brothers, but either the Bridges, I'm totally in on Michael Bridges for uh, Villanova, Miles Bridges for Michigan State. If either of them would fall to 17, I would be in on that. Um, Zaire Smith does cool dunks. He is young. He's a freshman. He's like 6'5", which is probably not big enough, but he does cool dunks. I'm aware of that. Um, And then Lonnie Walker at Miami is kind of interesting, like a 35% three-point shooter. Um, he was able to do some stuff off the dribble, score a little bit, um, and he did that all as a freshman at uh, Miami of Florida. Six ten and a half inch wingspan for a six four shooting guard. I'm kind of intrigued. Um, that's all I got for players that might currently be in the Bucks range and I've at least heard of. Yeah, and it's funny looking at different sites like especially once you go i mean it's one thing that i mean the top 10 seems to be sort of the same names over and over again no matter which sites you look at um but if you look at like the 15 through whatever range that's where it really begins to be kind of a random name generator in a lot of ways um so it's kind of interesting seeing some of the the different names popping up um i think a couple guys that are interesting for me um because they're total mysteries and that's good because I didn't watch a lot of college basketball. So I, I like guys that nobody really knows a lot about. And <laughs> two guys that nobody knows a lot about are uh, Anthony Simons, who's like a 6'3 uh, combo guard who 
basically, he's, I mean, he's a high schooler who reclassified, played at IMG Academy this year. Um, I think he's turning 19 in June. Yep. Um, and his name is Anthony. So, I mean, I think we could call him Penny and yes, feel, totally, feel totally okay about that. Um, so that's a positive. Uh, so he's kind of interesting. And, and again, I, I'm also kind of viewing this through my sort of like lens of like, yeah, it'd be cool to get like a guard who's like dynamic and could be maybe the like lead guard of the future for the Milwaukee Bucks, right? Like that'd mm-hmm. be kind of an interesting yeah. thing. Um, and another guy, Mitchell Robinson, um, people may remember him. Um, wait, was he, was he supposed to go to Western Carolina? Was that the random school he was supposed to go to? He was like a top <laughs> it was weird, yeah. He was a top prospect, got ruled academically ineligible um, before the season. Um, I don't know anything about him um, except the fact that he's a super high, pro- uh, super high ceiling guy, 7'1", 225, um, really interesting prospect. Who's again? I mean, he's projected right in that range for the Bucks on some of these sites, despite the fact that he didn't play basketball <laughs> this past year, yep. um, which is obviously uh, not not normal. Um, and one other guy who actually did play college basketball, who and I apologize. Somebody somebody pointed him out to me uh, on Twitter. So if you're listening to this, tweet at me again and tell me you were the one that planted, you know, that inceptioned me on on this <laughs> next guy. Um, but John Jonte Porter, uh, yep. the the brother of Michael Porter, who's going to be a top ten pick. Um, Michael is like a combo forward, six ten. Uh, Jonte is like a six eleven kind of combo big i mean he'll be a a center in the nba and he's really interesting because he's super young right him and his brother were both freshmen this year but jante is currently 18 won't turn 19 until november of this year so he's super young and he's a guy that is like he he actually came out number one in kevin pelton's uh draft raider this year Hmm. and mainly because he's like a really high skill big man who you know he did some big man things um but he was a had like a terrific assist rate. I think he was a good three point shooter for a big man. Um, and again, you know, it kind of like makes you a little nervous cause he's definitely more of a finesse kind of big guy. Um, I don't think he's going to be uh, an all defensive candidate or anything like that. Um, but he's sort of one of these interesting guys who again is like a analytics darling and super young, which is always something that we like because it means that, well, there's more potential to become so something like, that the guy currently So is. he's like bizarro Ethan Happ. Kind of, there's a little maybe bizarre Ethan Happ. He's bigger than Ethan Happ. Uh, he's six eleven. I'm not sure what his uh, other dimensions are, um, but there's maybe a little bit of that. Yeah, I don't think he was uh, quite the the stocks guy that that mm-hmm. Ethan Happ has been. Um, but he's definitely, and he's a lefty, so you gotta like that. Yeah, interesting. Okay, I'm. So, I'm anyway, just I'm some, in on some all random that. dudes. Some random dudes from a super uninformed non-draft guy yes. and me. Yes. Um, and I'm kind of and I'm kind of curious. It, it's funny Miles Bridges gets brought up. I remember a year ago we talked about him as like a sort of like hobo Jabari and now like maybe Jabari is a hobo Miles Bridges. I don't know. <laughs> Miles um, Bridges is hitting threes now. He's fun. Um, yeah. Although he's kind of although he's like what 6667, six, six, he's not yeah. a big guy. Yeah, he's he's strange. Um which for some reason makes him more alluring uh to me i don't know why he basically seems like he basically has like shabazz mohammed's frame but like more athleticism maybe yeah yeah that's not bad um also i would like to say right now i very much believe the bucks should buy a second round pick um they're going to be filling out the bottom of that roster um they don't they they have very few roster spots they need to find cheap options and i just i think buying a second rounder is a just to me, it's a no-brainer. Like you get 
a very favorable contract. You get someone that you hope can grow into a contributor for you. You get them on their rookie deal. Like all of that just seems they don't have money. Uh, so they're going to be getting kind of waiver wiry type guys. Um, it just seems like the thing to do. So I will say that now. I don't know how you feel about that, Frank. Are you asking a Bucks fan if they should buy a second round pick so that they don't go second round pickless? I mean, come on, Eric. That is that is the easiest <laughs> slam dunk. Of course they should do it type thing ever. No, nobody, no, no fan ever got pissed off by their team buying a draft pick. So that I mean, seriously, that that is a that is just a terrific way for uh, teams to win over their fan base is by buying yep. draft picks. So. Um, so go ahead, do it, Bucks. Throw, <laughs> throw a couple million bucks, even if it's you know, even if it's like a mid to late one. Just throw, a, peel off two million bucks and go pick some random dude who you know right now we maybe think should be a first round pick, and you know a couple months from now they're randomly a mid second round pick. Like it just um, that just makes so much sense to me, right? Like yeah. you you got to fill out those roster spots anyways. Yeah. By the way, one one other question. Um, so a, a lot of times when I come into the draft, um. I, like usually, what I do is I look where the bucks are, and then I pick somebody who's like probably going to be picked like four picks higher, mm-hmm. who is like good and fits into like a positional uh, archetype that I like. Yeah. And last year, and 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 I realize like it's going to seem like I'm cherry picking because like everybody claims they wanted Donovan Mitchell last year, but I think there are podcasts in which I I was like early on in the process was like, well, Donovan Mitchell like he wasn't one of the top like there were the top 10 point guards and then it was like donovan mitchell was like a mid first round pick but like you could maybe talk yourself into him being kind of combo guardish. Yep. so i was just like oh he seems athletic and like a decent shooter and you know whatever um i think we were very down with donovan mitchell yeah, to, think, for the record so. because so. also cole was very in on him so like we were already yeah. trending that way and then cole was in on him so i will say we were we were strong on our donovan donovan mitchell love yeah and so uh We'll give a pat on the back there. We, we can at one point go through uh, all the guys that sucked that we have liked over the years, um, but but why why you know why give credence to that right? It's our podcast. Let's let's yeah, try to make no. ourselves look good. Um, but positionally, so so I always sort of like end up doing this thing where I like you know try to talk myself into guys who play positions of need, <laughs> which yeah. is like what you're not supposed to do in the draft. But like especially because I'm not very informed usually when I start this, I'm like hoping that a guy who plays a position of need actually fits into, you know, the, the, you know, top, top player available type discussion mm-hmm. at the, wherever the bucks are. So if you could pick like a type of player, like a positional, again, like a positional type of player that would be the best player when the bucks pick and you, you know, you could p- pick him and not only would he be the best player available, but he would also fill the bucks most pressing need. What position would you want? And again, you don't have to be, Locking yourself into uh, the you know horrible condemnation of picking position over or you know fit over talent, but if you could know that this guy was going to be the best player on the available, what position would you want to pick? Oh wow, that's tough. Um, I think it's probably a point guard that can shoot threes off the dribble. Yeah. Um, I, I mean Trey Young's the obvious one, but yeah, I assume he'll go earlier. But people have cooled on him quite a bit. Um, I'm seeing a top 100 right now with him around eight. Um, but I think people will be too attracted to him to let him really fall all that much further. But to me, that's that's the spot, right? Like, if there's one infusion that this Bucks team needs, it's a, a pick and roll threat for Giannis that can 
break people down off the dribble and shoot threes like that that kind of unlocks pick and roll roll man Giannis if that needs unlocking which it doesn't but that's really what makes him just truly unstoppable so to me that would that would be first and then I mean that's the reason why I'm in and I'm not sure if it's Michael or Michael Bridges because it's M-I-K-A-L um, but that's why I'm I think the second spot is long wings that can shoot and Bridges is six seven with a seven two wingspan, plays defense, shoots threes. Like the, to me, that's that's the other one, and m- maybe that would be my answer as the number two need in every draft. Like that would just be what I would say. Like okay, get a, a wing with long arms that can defend and shoot. Yeah, that's that's what the Bucks need because you can never have enough of those guys. Um, but that would be my one and two for positional uh, archetype. You're gonna you're gonna make Tony Snell train the guy that replaces him. Is that is that how you're gonna do? You're gonna do Tony Snell dirty like that? Um, they get there's plenty of room for both of them. Like I, I'm all in on just collecting long wings that can shoot threes. So whoever fair, can do that, I'm in. Fair enough. Yeah, I mean, um, uh, you know, watching Philly, which I'm happy to report the Sixers are about to lose. They had this furious comeback and they're about to lose, which makes me happy. Um, you know, watching Robert Covington, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. every team would like to have a Robert Covington, right? And I don't know if Bridges is going to be Robert Covington, but, um, you know, just a plus defender who uh, who can shoot a, a bit. And again, I don't know if Bridges has the kind of overall offensive skill set to to kind of justify a lottery pick position. Like, like Bridges is one of those guys, like, you know that somebody is going to be uh picked after him who's going to be way better than him right like that that's like part of the deal with i think picking michael bridges is somebody is going to have a higher ceiling that you're going to pass on but you know how much are you willing to just say you know what i'm happy getting more of a known kind of quantity everyone one through 16 he's 21 and a half years old already he's gonna be 22 when he's drafted you don't want him you do not want michael bridges i'll tell you that right now you need a guy to go buy beers yeah you don't want that you want the young guy yeah come Um, on Trey Young is interesting just because we talked about it last year as well. I mean, the Bucs were obviously at 17 last year. I think we talked about this idea because there were so many point guards that were in the top 10. And we talked about, do you try to pack? I mean, what if you tried to package number 17 and Malcolm Brogdon? I think we talked about that exact idea, <laughs> right? Like, could could you do Brogdon and um, and and uh, 17 to pick, you yeah, know, it basically... It? It was Neil Aquina or Dennis Smith, right? Because yep. they were generally considered to be the guys who were going to go seven and eight. You know, the thought was that um, the they were not the the top point guards, or at least they weren't going to be drafted high. And so that was, I think, an interesting discussion last year. And you can make the same argument this year, right? I mean, if Trey Young ends up being a guy that is going tenth, right? Um, would you give up seventeen? And you know, I don't I don't know if there's anybody other than 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 Malcolm Brogdon you could really even throw in to to jump up that far because that's that's a pretty decent jump right i mean you, you, team a team that's convinced on blood so i don't know oh like make it make it a blood so type to, yeah i guess because it, it's is, like expiring your blood so though yeah well here's a question um so right now cleveland is slotted in at the eight spot um Ooh. that's actually that, that's actually a really interesting thing like could you Ooh. trade could you trade blood so plus 17 for, that's interesting frank i don't know pick i don't even i, I don't have the rock the Cavs roster in front of me but like you know some kind of deal where could you get trey young at you know if the Cavs end up at eight could you basically tell the tell the Cavs like we'll give you know and, and this is really all predicated on the idea that blood that blood or that uh lebron, LeBron actually comes there. back 
because obviously if LeBron is telling is not giving them any indication or whatever, then they'll probably just say, well, just give us Trey Young and we're, you know, we're going <laughs> to yeah. take that and move on. But, um, but yeah, it's an interesting idea. Like, is there a team in the mid to late lottery where, um, they might be willing to, uh, to, to make a move like that? Um, yeah, uh, Colin Sexton is another guy. I don't know that much to be honest about Sexton. I know he had that like legendary game where Alabama was going like four on five, yep. and he he almost won the game for them. But um, you know, there there are at least a couple of point guards with Young and Sexton in that kind of mid lottery range that that are intriguing. But certainly, this is not like last year where uh, where it was very point guard heavy, or at least that's obviously at this point not the the view. Um, I know. Uh, oh God, can I even pronounce his name? Shy. <laughs> Shy Gilgius Alexander, the guy from Kentucky. Is yeah. that how you pronounce his name? I don't know if it is, but Gilgius, that, Gilgius, that looks right. Gorgeous Shy. Um, he he's six six listed as a point guard, and he's he's currently kind of potentially also in uh, in that lottery range. Although I've seen him much lower on some other boards. So anyway, this will be fun. I'm I'm looking. You know, like anybody who says they didn't want to draft pick this year, come on, you yeah. really. Yeah. You really don't want the fun of being engaged in the NBA draft. Come on. Come on. This is, this is like one of the most fun parts of the year. Anyway, all right. We've talked way too long. We definitely, definitely have. But that's okay. It's the playoffs, and hopefully um, if you want to break it up and t- think about the draft at a different day, that's fine. Um, we got our matchup-based stuff there in the middle. So game two tonight, Bucks celtics We took you through some potential adjustments and – we will break down that game for you after it's over. Uh, we will talk to you after the game two, and we'll see if the Bucks are able to split their two games in Boston and try to steal home court coming home to Milwaukee on Friday night. For Frank Madden, I'm Eric Name. This has been Lockdown Bucks. We will talk to you after the game.